Welcome to Timeless Truth with Pastor Jim Thomas, a resource of the Village Chapel in Nashville, Tennessee. This is the first week of our 2024 winter season, and we're picking back up with our study of the Gospel of Mark. If you'd also like to dive into other studies from our archive, you can search our entire library at thevillagechapel.com resources. We pray these studies will help you to think biblically in all categories of life so that we all might be formed more into the likeness of Christ. Now, here's Pastor Jim. All right, so who do you believe was the greatest NBA basketball player of all time? How about the greatest NFL quarterback of all time? And why doesn't anybody ever talk about the greatest plumber or electrician of all time? How about the greatest Uber driver or FedEx delivery person of all time? And where do we get this acronym G-O-A-T, GOAT? Where does that come from? It turns out you can attribute the term GOAT to the actual GOAT himself, Muhammad Ali, the boxer, um, nicknamed the greatest and uh, his wife, I think, then began to call him the goat for publicity uh, purposes in the 1990s. What is greatness? What is true greatness like? Jesus talked about greatness because his disciples were talking about it. And he wanted to help them sort it out and figure out what true greatness was. We come to uh, verse 30 of Mark chapter 9. And here's how Mark records it. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee. So that's a northern third of Israel. They're going from village to village, from town to town. And he was unwilling for anyone to know. He was tamping down the popularity of uh, and, and that sort of widespread fame of what he was doing because he didn't want there to be such huge crowds that the Romans would take notice just yet and try to put an end to it or um, that it would cause some kind of political upheaval or that kind of thing. It seems that the messianic secret was being kept until just the right time, which would be determined not by the Romans and not by the religious authorities on the ground at the time, but by Jesus himself and uh, at the behest of his father. Uh, the, the God of all creation uh, and the Holy Trinity working together in the timing of all of these things. Verse 31, Jesus was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered up um, uh, into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise again three days later. This is the second time um, that we've read about Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. We'll read it again in yet another chapter. So once in chapter 8, once in chapter 9, once in chapter 10 here of Mark's gospel. And you can read the other gospel records and you'll find that Jesus actually knew um, why he came to earth, why he came to be a human person and what the mission he was on was all about. And uh, so when you read that kind of thing, you have to acknowledge, you have to see, uh, again, it's Jesus fully aware of what's going to happen, yet still he comes to lay down his life, uh, to take my sin upon himself when he goes to the cross, to take your sin upon himself when he goes to the cross, so that we could know with certainty that the price for our sin has actually been paid once and for all. 
And those of us who live on this side of the cross, it's just amazing to look back through space-time history and see that Jesus came. He didn't owe it to us. He came into a dark world that had turned away from God completely. And, uh, and, and just uh, as he did that, uh, so many of us well aware of the fact that our hearts were darkened. And yet the Lord uh, bursts forth, you know, and sovereign grace moves upon us and brings us his light and his salvation. Verse 32, they, the disciples, didn't understand what Jesus was talking about with his death, being delivered up to the uh, religious leaders, that they would kill him, that they would, um, uh, that he would be buried, that he would be then, that it would rise from the grave. This is all so beautiful that he is predicting this and that he constantly reminds them about the fact that in spite of the bad news of his arrest, betrayal, his arrest, his his uh, scourging, his uh, his death and his burial and all of that, he's still going to rise again three days later. And he's telling them that all along, and I appreciate that so much. Um, they didn't understand his statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Please don't ever be afraid to ask Jesus. He, You have questions. I have questions. We ought to, first of all, expect that we would have questions. After all, when we ponder or consider God, we, the finite creatures, are considering the infinite, the one, the, only, the single, the only infinite creature who is the cause of everything else that has come into existence. He's our creator. Uh, there's only one. There can be only one. He's, if the title God means anything, uh, if the supreme being title means anything, there's only one. He's the creator of everything that exists. And so we ought to expect we will have questions that we won't be able to answer in this life at least. And yet here, these guys, not only do they have those questions, but it goes, Mark goes beyond that and says, and they were afraid to ask him. And I'm, I'm just going to encourage us. I'm glad Mark said that, telling us what happened with those original disciples. But here's what I, what I want to say. Ask him. Uh, he doesn't want you to be afraid of him at all. They came to Capernaum, verse 33 says, and that's that small town he hubbed out of a lot of his uh, earthly ministry he was in Galilee, Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, been to the ruins uh, six times. It's, it's just an amazing archaeological find. And um, so he came there. When he was in the house, whatever house it was, that it pro- likely Peter's or Peter's mother-in-law, he comes to the house and um, he began to question them, the disciples. And what he's saying there is this. What were you discussing along the way? So while they're traveling around Galilee and they come back to Capernaum and they're chatting along the roadway as, as they're traveling, you know, from town to town. And Jesus says to them, ask these guys a question. And again, his questions are always about us learning something um, or the disciples in the immediate sense. What were you discussing on the way? Jesus asks them. They kept silent. Verse 34 says, For on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. (laughs) And you know, I know, I know it's easy to you know, two thousand years later, see something in somebody else um, that that you kind of go, guys, don't you see this is Jesus you're with? 
I mean, if there ever was a, a real G-O-A-T, a goat, a real greatest of all time, it's Jesus, you know? And yet, there you are with him. And you guys are talking about which one of you are the greatest of all time. They kept silent uh, and because they were ashamed, I'm sure. And uh, they, they, you know, in, in contrast to Jesus, they ought to keep silent. They, they really, they should have just gone, dope. You know, I just should have been one of those times where they just really realized how foolish their conversation was to begin with. Verse 35, sitting down, he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, isn't it interesting that he knew what they were talking about, even though they didn't answer, they kept silent. He knew what they were talking about. Um, Jesus knows our hearts. He knows what's going on in our minds. And so that's so freeing, isn't it, when you think about it? He already knows what's going on in our hearts and our minds. He already knows. We can't hide that from him. And yet he still loves us. Oh, man, that, that's just amazing. If, I mean, if everybody knew what you always thought or if everybody knew what your, was in your heart, what kind of desires were in your heart that were ruling and uh, you know, reigning over top of you all the time and keeping you held bound into some addiction or whatever it might be that's got a grip on you, if everybody knew that all the time, you, of course, would think they would back away from you. They wouldn't want to love you. And yet here's the one who loves us so fully, Jesus came for us while we were yet sinners. He knows us fully, loves us completely. So the one who knows you the most, he knows you better than you know yourself, by the way. He's your creator. He designed you. He knows you. He knows me better than I know myself. And yet he still loves us. That's amazing freedom that we should have if we realize that if anyone wants to be first, he says, he should be the last of all, the servant of all. In other words, the greatest is the servant, is the the inversion, the paradoxical kingdom of heaven, right? Taking a child, he stood him in the midst of them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name is receiving me. Whoever receives me is not receiving me, but him who sent me. There's that child that would have represented some level of innocence and vulnerability, um, dependence, uh, eyes of wonder, uh, very, you know, might have represented sort of the teachable type of, of person, uh, eager to learn, that sort of thing. And Jesus says, if you receive one child like this in my name, um, representing me, and you welcome them into the kingdom of heaven, you're, you're treat, you treat me just like you treat them. And the way you treat them reflects the way you think about me, Jesus says. Verse 38, John, and this is John, the beloved disciple, John, the brother of James. And he says to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. And that, that just, you gotta, I put the emphasis on the right words there because I want you to get it in advance. Whoever this was, was casting out demons in the name of who? Jesus, because John says your name, right? And yet John and some of the disciples tried to stop the person. Why? Because they were not following, not you this time, but us. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So again, there's this uh, 
out of balance view of the self and the role of the disciples. And this can happen to all of us. I mean, this can happen in our own day and time, pastors all the time, uh, uh, conference speakers, uh, Christian musicians, a lot of people that, quote, represent, if you will, uh, Jesus in some way or the gospel in some way, they can get their sort of view of themselves a little bit twisted. And so <laughs> this guy was casting out demons. John and the rest of them trying, no, shut, shut that down. You're not following us, you know, even though the guys, whoever it is, is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Well, Jesus says to John, verse 39 says, do not hinder him for there's no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. And the tenderness of Jesus there in not just boldly rebuking John and the other disciples, but to say, look, look, look guys, calm down. If he's, if he's not against us, he's for us. If he's, if he's casting out, if he's performing miracles in my name, pretty soon he's going to have to speak about me. And it's going to have to be in a positive way. He won't be able to speak evil about me. Verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. In other words, Jesus is saying here, the way that other people treat the followers of Jesus, um, Jesus is going to take that very personally. And in the day and age in which we live, uh, where Christians are persecuted more than ever before in history, that's a sobering, uh, sober kind of warning, isn't it? And also, those of us that represent the Lord uh, or are supposed to be representing the Lord. You included, me included, not just vocational Christians, not just people that work at churches, not just people that uh, work for some Christian missionary organization. No, no, no. Anybody that's claiming to name the name of Jesus who leads or causes one of these little ones, leads them astray um, or causes them to stumble, it would be better for them if they had a heavy millstone hung around their neck and they were tossed into the sea. Um, wow, that's, again, sobering. So what, what Jesus offers here is a, a sober warning, uh, not only to those who aren't followers of Jesus, uh, not only to those in the way that they would treat Christians, but also to those who are Christians and might lead someone astray. Um, so that's that's an important thing for us to be thinking about. All right. So what do we learn here? I, I really just have, you know, one kind of summary point that I would pull out of this passage, and that's this. Let me summarize it this way: True greatness is found in self-giving, not in self-aggrandizing. True greatness is found in self-giving, not self-aggrandizing. Okay. So that's. That's, I think, what we're seeing here in this particular passage. Um, John Stott, in a, uh, a book he wrote back in uh, the early 90s, it was called Life in Christ. I think you can still find used versions of the book, but um, he said this, it would be hard to improve on Luther, Martin Luther's description of fallen man as homo ense incarvatus, that is, man curved in on himself. 
He goes on to say, human fallenness is human selfishness. Most ambition is selfish ambition. People who succeed because they attain wealth, fame, and power do so mainly because they are driven by an inner urge to self-aggrandizement. This is not pessimism, but sober realism of Christians who want to look facts in the face. Okay, so the facts are the facts. And um, I think they're true. I I think what he said there is true. I don't think he's saying that it's wrong to have um, achieved or acquired things. I don't think he's, I don't, I know John Stott's writings well enough to know that he's not saying having money is evil in and of itself, but the love of money is evil. Uh, Letting your money have you is what's evil. Um, uh, Your resources, those things that God has entrusted to you were entrusted to you, but he's also entrusting them to you for a reason. Let's keep it moving. Let's keep the glory of God flowing. Let's keep using whatever he entrusts to us to uh, glorify God and to bless our neighbors, to to bless the, the mission of the gospel in the world. Um, some of you are, are quite faithful uh, in your giving to the church that you attend, and that's so very important. Um, there are offerings, and, and there are um, donations that we make to all kinds of different organizations in the name of Jesus, and that's really important that we do that. Tithes to our church, offerings on top of our tithes to other uh, worthy causes that the Lord may put in front of us, and those those offerings might be gifts to individuals, they might be gifts to causes, that sort of thing. But I think that's also very important for us to know that and to not allow ourselves to uh, uh, sort of pat ourselves on the back too much and look how great I am, that sort of thing. Um, so as we think about what true greatness is, I think we have to remember it's not going to be found in self-aggrandizing. It's going to be found in self-giving. Uh, giving yourself away. Self, the selfie generation, as it's called, ever since we got smartphones that have cameras in them and all that sort of thing, uh, we're being shaped and influenced every, every day, all day, all the time uh, to think that we're at the center of the universe. Uh, we're the sort of the, the object. I mean, there's some people that if you go to, you know, if you're, if you're in any kind of a, a city that has tourism and you just see people all the time, click, 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 and taking pictures of, I see people, I watch the Tour de France every year. I see people now that lean out as the, as the cyclists are coming along behind them. They lean out so their face is it. They do this, they take a selfie, and sure enough, they're leaning out so far that they, that they cause a cyclist to, to, who's coming up. There's so, so many of them coming up a hill or whatever, and they, they crash. The cyclist crash their, crash their entire season is over, all because somebody wanted to get a selfie. Um, wow. In contrast to all of that, here's Jesus. Um, and his message is a cool, refreshing breeze on a, uh, on a stifling and smothering hot summer day. Um, he would say, and he, we'll read it in, in chapter 10 when we get there, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Um, and besides, if you want to follow the science when it comes to uh, you know, this whole problem of thinking you're the center of the universe, if you want to follow the science, I love, yeah, you can go online and find it in the uh, graduation speech of, that was given by a guy named David McCullough Jr. You can look it up online at uh, uh, Wellesley High School. 
I think it's up in New England somewhere. He's the, the, the title of the speech is You're Not Special, which I thought was just brilliant. Uh, he says, astrophysicists assure us the universe has no center. Therefore, you cannot be it. That's just so, that's just so sobering. In a day and age when everybody is, you know, all focused on self-image and propping people up and telling them all kinds of things about how great they are and all that sort of thing. Um, I just, I think we're being unrealistic. And I think, I think we're creating sort of this, this nation of narcissists. And we need to be careful about that. I, I believe in encouragement. I believe in affirmation in, to a certain degree. But I think it's, it's certainly gotten a little bit crazy out there in the world. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Mark, says, Jesus would have us to know that his death was the great end for which he came into the world. Why is Jesus the greatest? Because he actually came and laid down his life uh, in my place and in yours, and he didn't have to. Why would he do that? So greatness is being measured a little bit differently, isn't it? Um, Ryle goes on to say, Jesus would remind us that uh, by his death, the great problem was going to be solved. Uh, How God could be just and yet justify sinners. He did not come upon earth merely to teach and preach and work miracles. He came to make satisfaction for sin by his blood and his suffering on the cross. See, it's a, it's a great paradox to us, isn't it? Out of his death comes life for all of us. This is just brilliant. It's just amazing. The Apostle Paul would write about the humility of Christ in doing that and the self-sacrifice of Christ in doing that. As he writes to the church in Ephesus, And he tells them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they have been called. And he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's so much there. You need to unpack that yourself. Read Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. I'll make sure it's in the show notes for you if you would like to look there. True greatness According to Jesus, after hearing all of the disciples arguing about who's the greatest, after all of them wanting to be first, the whole me first thing, being obsessed with it, they they were the selfie generation before there was such a thing as a selfie on a phone. Um, And it's really a human problem, isn't it? We just get focused on the self. True greatness is found in self-giving, not self-aggrandizing. Uh, by the way, that, that guy that did the uh, speech at the graduation speech, he said uh, selflessness, that is giving yourself away, selflessness is the best thing you can do for yourself. Selflessness is the best thing you can do for yourself. Jesus came to free us from the obsessive need to be the center of attention, to receive adulation and affirmation for every little bit of who we are, even the distorted, weird parts of who we are. He came to free us from this obsession with having the last word on social media or anywhere in an argument or discussion. He came to free us from the, our desperation to be right all the time, to be regarded, to be rewarded, and to be respected all the time. He set us free from all of that. We might find our life in him. Yeah, beautiful. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Uh, I pray today that you help us get our eyes off ourselves 
And Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, um, who for the joy set before him uh, left all the comforts of heaven and came to earth to lay his life down for us. The joy set before him being my brothers and sisters who are watching or listening to this. Uh, the joy set before Jesus being me. I, it, it blows my mind to even think that we could be your joy, your delight, Lord. Um, as that begins to sink in, I pray that it would humble us and turn us toward you with gratitude, lifting up the empty hands of faith and saying thank you, and then walking in the light of your grace and the gift of your mercy, your forgiveness, and the good news of the gospel just falling freely from our lips and being seen in our deeds, our words, our work, our play, our relationships, everything. May the gospel invade and influence every bit of who we are today. We pray in Jesus' name which is the greatest name ever. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to today's study. Take a moment to leave a review and share this episode with friends and family. You can stay connected by signing up for our newsletter or follow us on social media. At the Village Chapel, we believe God's word is unique in its source, timeless in its truth, broad in its reach, and transforming in its power. For more resources or to support our ministry, visit our website, thevillagechapel.com.